Do you hear that mm. rain, Nick? Can you hear it? Yeah, it's side? raining here too, man. Oh, it's man. raining here too. It's raining in New Zealand. So it's kind of cozy and I got my bourbon out and we're going to talk about Eusebi uh, Us. Eusebius. <laughs> <laughs> Distance education students. Eusebius <laughs> <laughs> of Caesarea. Okay, good. <laughs> stay, stay with us. This is going to be good. This guy, uh, he's like the opposite end of the two kingdom spectrum. So, like, he's of interest to me because, you know, he's going to be the guy really at the end of. If it's almost like I see Augustine on the one side, and um, and Eusebius on the other side. You know, totally. So, so he kind of sparks off this this Constantinianism, <laughs> and then um, you know, Augustine he wrote the in, he wrote a biography on Constantine. He literally did Constantinianism, yeah, and and, and Augustine <laughs> literally pulled it apart. So. Um, yeah, I mean, an important book, and obviously he's big for his history, right? Very big, yeah. I mean, um, a, pretty much uh, an all-rounded scholar. Very true. big on history, very big on textual criticism. Yeah. Sort of following in the footste footsteps of Origen. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, yeah, apparently so. he loved Origen. Yep, he, one, of his, he, one of his students. Wasn't he in charge of Origen's library or something like that? I think it was something <clears> yeah, like something that. like that. And, yeah. um... And uh, he was, was he martyred? I think he was as well. Eusebius? Yeah. No. Wasn't he? No. So he, he was. Um, oh, because obviously he went into the Constantinian phase. So he, he, was, he was at the yeah. council of, he was at the council of Nicaea. Mm. So he was, he was favored by Constantine. And when Constantine died, he wrote his biography. Of course. Yeah. No, he wouldn't have been martyred, but um, man. So he would have seen it though with origin. Yep. Um, at least in the torture sort of thing. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of um, his writing, apparently I've got a written here that he wasn't necessarily the most eloquent um, or original or anything. But the irony of his writing is that because of his lack of originality and the fact that he sort of heavily relied on quotations and whatnot, uh, it, it turned out to be one of the greatest strengths of his writings or the most valuable thing. Because now we we have much of those things that were lost, uh, yeah, you know, basically right. preserved in his quotations, his lengthy quotations. Brilliant. So that's amazing how that providence worked out. Um, there's a little lesson there, right? You just got to do what you do. God will use it, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're the quoting guy or the original yeah. guy. You just there, do there's it. room. There's room in church history for the boring guy. That's, that's right. That, that's that's right. the lesson. And not only room. I mean, you, this is big. This is big league. Um, so yeah, good. Um, so he wrote a lot of books, obviously, and we're not covering them all. Yeah. Uh, we're not even coming close to covering one, but we're looking at his, I think everyone unanimously feels that history of the church, um, is his biggest magnum opus, so to speak. And, um, and so what we'll do is just go ahead and, and look at a few of these, uh, how many we got two chapters really, huh? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, well, what, inter what interested me as I was doing some research on him was yeah. the fact that he was an Arian. Is that and right? It was, uh, yeah, and only under pressure at the Council of Nicaea did he subscribe. <clears throat> so there was, a, there was a, a bit of an antithesis between him and Athanasius. Wow. And uh, so there's, yeah, 
So he 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 supported Origin in some of some of his subordinationism. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, a personal friend of Arius. So yeah, just interesting politics throughout wow. that whole period. Man, yeah. that's crazy. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's the, those are the guys. It's almost like a Norman Shepherd controversy. Yeah, you basically. Know, where you've got like people that know each other and want to be kind <laughs> to the other people, and that's crazy. Um, okay, good. So, um, man, this uh, rain is coming down hard. So I don't know if this is recording too much on the on the thing. So if it is, sorry about that. Nothing we can do about it. It's raining. It's New Zealand. It's summer. Yay. We love the rain. <laughs> um, okay, you wanted to kick us off at the first chapter, right? Yep. So I'm reading a chapter that's basically just giving us the martyrdom story of Paul and Peter. So that's uh, book two, chapter 25. Yeah. From uh, what's the name of the book? The History of the Church. History of the Church. So that's like his big one where all the martyrdom stories are in here. So uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs draws very heavily on this book. Yes. Um, and he actually did another book on the martyrs, didn't he? Um, I think he did, but the whole of book five in this it is also about martyrdom. Yeah, it's yeah, also all yeah. about the martyrs, yeah. Right, totally. Cool. Alrighty, so uh, I'll kick it off. Thanks. <clears throat> when the government of Nero was now firmly established, he began to plunge into unholy pursuits and armed himself even against the religion of the God of the universe. To describe the greatness of his depravity does not lie within the plan of this present work as there are many indeed that have recorded his history in most accurate narratives. Everyone may at his pleasure learn from them the coarseness of the man's extraordinary madness under the influence of which after he had accomplished the destruction of so many myriads without any reason, he ran into such blood guiltiness that he did not spare even his nearest relatives and dearest friends but destroyed his mother and his brothers and his wife with very many others of his own family as he would private and public enemies with various kinds of death. But with all these things, this particular in the catalogue of his crimes was still wanting. First of the emperors, who showed himself an enemy of the divine religion. The Roman Tertullian is likewise a witness of this. He writes as follows. Examine your records. There you will find that Nero was the first that persecuted this doctrine particularly then when after subduing all the East, he exercised his cruelty against all at Rome. We glory in having such a man, the leader in our punishment. For whoever knows him can understand that nothing was condemned by Nero unless it was something of great excellence. Thus publicly announcing himself as the first among God's chief enemies, he was led on to the slaughter of the apostles. It is therefore recorded that Paul was beheaded in Rome itself and that Peter likewise was crucified under Nero. This account of Peter and Paul is substantiated by the fact that their names are preserved in the cemeteries of that place, even to the present day. Do you have more than that in your account? Um, let's have a look here. Um, no, that's it. That's Okay, I've got yeah. three more chapters, but they're, they're all about uh, different people basically quoting. Right, yeah. Okay. You want to leave it there or keep reading? Yeah, that's good. Okay, that's good. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, what do you think? I mean, that's that's awesome <clears throat> in that it just sort of gives you. I love the way it makes you. It just gives you such a feeling of authenticity, right? You you know about these guys and these characters from history, but just to hear it from someone so close to the events and yes. um, so connected, it just you know, it's I, I don't know, just overwhelming sense of authenticity about it all. Definitely. Yeah. And. Um, <clears throat> 
So Eusebius is known as the historian of the church, but after the Enlightenment, uh, you know, when all the scientific methods of archaeology and history came in, a lot of modern scholars went back to Eusebius, and, and have, I think they've given him a bit of a hard time. Mm. Um, it's true, he probably wasn't as accurate as he could have been. Right. But uh, I think records like this are, are well enough attested to uh, that we can accept them to be true. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, good. And so we got that big quote from Tertullian there. And uh, what else? Yeah. We got Dionysus. This is the real Dionysus, not the pseudo Dionysus. Um, yep. Yeah, wow. So you can just see how the, the quotes roll, you know? The one I'm going to read, it's got Irenaeus, I think, twice. Oh, a massive That's one right. from Irenaeus, yeah. Uh, and Polycarp, actually, led it to Florinus. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, wow. This is just a treasure trove of. Yeah, and even just, the, even just the chapter after this one, he's, he's quoting Josephus. Mm -hmm. Paragraph of paragraph, yeah. Because yeah. Josephus would be the other guy, the big uh, history guy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so really this together with Josephus is is the mainstay of what we have um, when we want to peer into the window of this time and, and just uh, the life of Christ and whatnot. Um, all right, so let's keep on moving here. Um, so book is it book five? Yes. Yeah, book, book five, five uh, and chapter 20. All right, Irenaeus wrote several letters against those who were disturbing the sound ordinance of the church at Rome. One of these, to Blastus, was entitled Schism. Another, to Florinus, was entitled Monarchy, or that God is not the author of evil, a view which Florinus seemed to be defending. Because Florinus was being led astray by the error of Valentinius, Irenaeus wrote in his work the Ogdoad, <laughs> I'm going to just go with that, um, in which he shows that he himself had known the first successes of the apostles. At the close of this treatise, I found a most beautiful note, which I am constrained to insert in this work. It's kind of like me in sermons. I just can't mm. resist, right? Got to put the quote <laughs> in there. Um, whoever, he says, copies this book, I adjure you by our Lord Jesus Christ and by his glorious advent, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, to compare what you write with this manuscript and carefully correct it. You are also to write this adjuration and include it in the copy. These things may be profitably read in his work, and I have recorded them that we may have those ancient and truly holy men as the best example of painstaking carefulness. In the letter to Florinus, to which I referred, Irenaeus again mentions his intimacy with Polycarp. Uh, no, this is Polycarp. Oh, is this Irenaeus speaking? Yeah, Irenaeus. Um, yeah. Such doctrines, to put it mildly, uh, to put it mildly, Florinus, are not of sound judgment. They disagree with the church and drive those who accept them into the greatest impiety. Not even the heretics outside of the church have ever dared to publish such doctrines. The presbyters who came before us and were companions of the apostles did not deliver such doctrines to you. When I was a boy, I saw you in Lower Asia with Polycarp, moving in splendor in the royal court and trying to gain his approval. I remember the events of that time more clearly than those of recent years, for what boys learn grows with their mind and becomes part of it. So I can describe the very place where the blessed Polycarp sat as he spoke, his goings out and his comings in, the manner of his life, his physical appearance, his discourses to the people, and the accounts that he gave of his conversation with John and the others who had seen the Lord. He remembered their words and what he had heard from them about the Lord, his miracles, and his teaching, having received them from eyewitnesses of the word of life. 
These things Polycarp told in harmony with the scriptures. I listened attentively to these things which were told me by the mercy of God, noting them down not on paper but in my heart. By God's grace, I constantly and faithfully recall them. I can bear witness before God that if I had that if that blessed and apostolic presbyter had heard any such thing, he would have cried out, stopped his ears, and would have exclaimed, as was his way, Dear God, for what times have you spared me that I should endure these things? And he would have fled from the place where he was sitting or standing when he heard such words. This is clear from the letters which he sent, either to confirm neighboring churches or to admonish and exalt individual believers. Mm. And that is the end of that. Um, man. Yeah, it's just great. I mean, what, what I'm just relishing about Eusebius is just yeah. the fact that Christianity is built on history. Yeah. And there are eyewitnesses. Yeah. I mean, um, I just think of Michael Kruger's, uh, I think it's, the book's called How the Second Century uh, Affected the Church or Affected the World. Mm. And what he does is he just points out how Christians were people of the book. Yes. You know, how they were a people who recorded things, who wrote down book binding, uh, rose up around the process of, of them putting scripture together and uh, just, you know, keeping all of these writings through history. Yeah. And uh, Eusebius um, affected the next thousand years of how history was done mm. because of the, the quality of his work. Wow. So it shaped the whole medieval era. Amazing. And uh, yeah, so he stands as a, as a foundation for a, a lot of scholarship in church history. Right. And that's probably the, the, the counterpoint to what you were saying earlier in that, you know, whatever for whatever he might be compared or for wherever he might be lacking in comparison to say modern scholarship. Uh, that's yeah. really not the way to look at him. You've got to see it more in terms of uh, the way he, he formed um, such an influencing part of the way scholarship as itself is done uh, in, mm. in itself. So, you know, many other points just like that in Christianity that people forget. Um, but yeah, that's uh, it's, I mean, you know, it's great. I mean, I don't know if it's the translation that, that makes it so, easy to read from my side, but it just, I mean, it seems very readable. seems like you just yeah. want to go ahead and, and read the whole thing, you know? Yeah, um, I was actually using uh, Eusebius earlier in the week. I'm uh, moving through Luke's gospel and uh, I came across, you know, Simon Peter, his first reference right. in Luke's gospel and he has a mother-in-law and like, oh, the commentaries mention a reference in Eusebius. So like I pull it out yeah, and it talks about Peter's kids. It talks about Peter's wife. Um, it's just Isn't great to amazing? have some of those early yeah. traditions. Yeah. Totally. So it's very, very useful. Yeah. Um, my um, When I was talking to my brother um, earlier this week, um, he made the point, I think uh, this came ultimately from something Jordan Cooper was saying. I, I forget now where this reference was derived from. But, but he was just saying that, you know, one of the things about the the early church fathers is that you really – aren't able, anyone who really knows them is not able to go to them for any real leverage on any real doctrine. You can't, you can't use it as the grounding for, for anything. People try, but they fail because there's always a counterpoint. They, they, there's such a diversity of, yes. of beliefs that were held by them. And I, I think that's such a great point, especially just from this historical perspective as you look at this uh, work and as it sort of leads you into further writings because it, it sort of frees the whole venture of its uh you know agenda you know you not you don't have to you can just accept and we've been saying this throughout but you can just accept what they're they're saying um you know take it for what it is and yes. don't feel like you have to have an axe to grind with it or whatever or that it's necessarily going to prove your doctrine has antiquity to it or anything like that just enjoy the the reality of the tradition itself 
And um, I mean, I think those things that are like unavoidably clear will come through. Nothing can stop them. Like you've got you've got the divinity of Christ. You've got the the Trinity. You've got I mean, these things are just mainstay right throughout. Um, but, you, you know, otherwise those those perhaps the more periphery doctrines or we wouldn't necessarily think of them as periphery, but perhaps those other doctrines that we'd go hunting for in the church fathers uh, would be wise to leave that alone, you know, and just just enjoy it. Yeah, amen. Now, uh, just a side note, you know, I've, I've haven't listened to Jordan Cooper. Yeah, and I've been listening to you and your brother wishing you could become Lutherans. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just can't resonate with that. About the Lutheranism or the wishing to... Yeah, or to yeah the, I mean, the, the, probably the last thing I'd ever become is a Lutheran. So really? here's, here's my reason why. Yeah, just well, to throw, throw, my, throw it in there. Yeah. <laughs> throw in my two cents. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's, it's got to do with their ecclesiology and their approach to the sacraments. Yeah. And basically, you know, when you approach the sacraments, there are, as a Baptist, I, I say that there are, there are two aspects. There's the object of reality and there's the subjective. You know, the baptism speaks of the objective fact that God has united you with Christ. Um, and then there's the subjective element where I, as the subject, am saying, I am making my commitment and confessing my faith, faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. And I found that with the, the Lutheran approach to the, the sacraments mm. is that they've, they've held to the objective apart from the subjective. Mm -hmm. So it's all about what God is doing. It's all about what God is saying. And the subject becomes irrelevant. And so for that reason, you can apply it to infants. Yeah. Because their participation is not called for because it's the objective yeah. Yeah. thing that's happening in baptism, yeah. not it's, the objective, it's like objective aspect. Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. I think Horton makes the same mistake. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the, I, I think what we're always saying is, you know, for me anyway, like if I think of federal vision, for example, and yeah. uh, I don't want to repeat too much <clears> of this because I made the point recently, but, um, you know, there is a, I, th I what I see about that is the obvious tension within the Presbyterian infant Baptist si situation or system. You know, they they can't go ahead and just be sac you know sacerdotal at least, or they can't just go ahead and come up with a something or other that's going to say you can be regenerate and then lose your your you know be be unregenerate again afterwards. They, they've so they've got to like work within this very very uh, awkward kind of covenant system and and end up. I don't know, just uh, messing around with it. And that just feels like probably federal vision is the logical outcome for that. And that's, you know, who wants that anyway? Yeah. Whereas with Lutheranism, it's sort of just gone there. You know, it said, okay, listen, we're going all the way. Uh, you know, baptism literally saves you, you know, and then you can be unsaved <laughs> again. And so there's a kind of consistency there that I, I just well, I can respect. It's, it's a consistent Augustinianism, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, that, that's probably the best way to put it. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just respect the fact that they are just owning up to what they're doing. You know, I think you have to, you have to kind of go there if you're going to baptize a kid, let's put it that way. Either that yeah. or Rome directly. So, um, and, and so that's why I see those as the little, the little, uh, stepping stones. <laughs> those are your choices, really. That all be Baptist. You know? Oh, Reformed Baptist, man. That's the, the it's happy the, perf place. the perfect situation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's hard to be this perfect on everything, but, you know, <laughs> you get used to it after a while and it just becomes a safe place from which to critique everything else. Oh, exactly. I mean, I, I remember working through the Psalms, you know, and you've got the dispensational reading of the Psalms that this is completely irrelevant. And then you got the uh, Presbyterian reading of the Psalms, and this is like basically copy and pasted. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the Reformed Baptist, where there's a much more emphasized uh, discontinuity, but you know the covenant of grace 
running through the whole thing with strong continuity yeah. and a common experience of salvation. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And and also that's kind of one of the reasons I'm not such a big fan of the federalism angle with Reformed Baptist theology now because it kind of, for me, it, it, it removes that that really beautiful fine balance we got going at the moment, you know. And it feels yeah. like we got the best in every camp and, um, you know, it feels a little too close to the dispensational thing when they come along and want to chop the... Um, you know, the overarching covenant of grace. But I know that's a more subtle conversation and don't want to give offense to anyone. But, um, yeah, all that from Eusebius though, right? <laughs> so, yeah. anyways, relevant. Um, there we go. So that's another – what year are we at? We haven't even uh, – So he uh, so he would, have, he would have been born mid-3rd century uh-huh. And he outlived Constantine, so he would have gone into the fourth century. So he lived through the whole Constantinian Revolution, sat through Nicaea, so the early fourth century. Uh, I don't know, don't know the exact date of his death. What do you but, think uh, his um, church? Uh, oh, actually, three twenty-four. I've got you. So okay, there you go. His death so birth. thirteen was when Constantine became emperor. Right. What do you think of his uh, his experience? Would it be a basilica? He would go to church at a basilica, or would they build you? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, Constantine did build churches. Um, so how long did that take? Um, who knows? Who knows? Well, well, I'll tell you what I do know. You should go to a church tomorrow. That's right. No matter what the building looks like, no go to church. What? In fact, some churches don't even have buildings. It's about going to worship. It's about gathering. That's what it's about. Gathering under the Word. So get to the Word. Don't be listening to this podcast tomorrow. That's for sure. Peace out. Cheers. Shalom, like a river. Mm-hmm.